This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll be reading from the November-December issue of Hadassah Magazine, which is a very impressive piece of journalism. I wish we could go back to the days when it came out every month. Instead, now it comes out quarterly. The articles are fantastic about the Jewish life around the world and here in the United States and in Israel and on women's issues as well. So first we begin with a commentary, a civics lesson for Jews, the Talmud obligates us to speak out, by Beth Kisseleff. Beth is the co-editor of Bound in the Bond of Life. Pittsburgh writers reflect on the Tree of Life tragedy and the author of the novel Questioning Return. I visited the White House on July 11, 2022. Before you say how exciting that must have been, I will stop you to say it was no fun. I was there with hundreds of people who had been harmed by gun violence, as I was when a shooter entered the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh on October 27, 2018, and opened fire, killing 11. The grief in Washington was palpable. The man in line ahead of me and my husband, Rabbi Jonathan Perlman, who was leading services the day of the shooting for our New Light congregation, which then met inside Tree of Life, lost his son in a school shooting in Saguaro, California. Behind us stood a man from the Sandy Hook community in Newtown, Connecticut. There were families wearing t-shirts bearing images of their dead loved ones, others holding aloft photos of their deceased and sporting tattoos with the names and faces of those they'd lost. The man next to us, Alexander Schultz, lost his father. Olympic wrestler Dave Schultz, when he was shot by a mentally unbalanced man who had power, wealth, and access to guns. That shooting is now memorialized in the movie Foxcatcher. We had congregated on the White House lawn to watch President Biden sign into law the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Among the speakers at the event were community members from Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas. Garnell Whitfeld Jr. lost his 86-year-old mother, Ruth, when she was among the 10 black people killed in the top supermarket in Buffalo in May 2022. Dr. Roy Guerrero, the only pediatrician in Uvalde, spoke of attempting in vain to reassure the traumatized children of his city. The astounding amount of loss that exists in this country because of gun violence was on full display. And yet there was an element of triumph, too. All of us were there because we had spoken out to promote change. Each attendee was present to witness the creation of a blueprint to limit weapons so that there might not be others who have to suffer as we have. This gun safety measure is an unparalleled victory for those who think public places, synagogues, churches, and mosques, elementary schools, and grocery stores need to be spaces where citizens can gather without fear. Gun violence is not the only issue on which Jews should think about speaking out. Our tradition offers clear guidance on how we as Jews should be involved in the society around us. The Talmud in Shabbat 54b states, anyone who had the capability to effectively protest the sinful conduct of the members of, this ho- of his household and did not protest, he himself is apprehended for the sins of the members of his household and punished. 
If he is in a position to protest the sinful conduct of the people of his town and he fails to do so, he is apprehended for the sins of the people of his town. If he is in a position to protest the sinful conduct of the whole world and he fails to do so, he is apprehended for the sins of the whole world. This is a tall order, but the Jewish idea that we are required to speak out against a wrong if we have the capacity to do so is a worthwhile lesson. One of the strongest ways to make our voices heard is to vote, which hopefully most of us did on November 8th. If we want to live in a society shaped by our values, whether safely from gun violence, advocating for Israel, saving the environment for future generations, or protecting women's reproductive choices, it is incumbent upon us to speak publicly about those values. Not all of us will need to make the journey to the White House lawn. Instead, let us be grateful at this season of Thanksgiving that wherever we are, we can express our Jewish values with our voices and our votes. And next, an essay from Hadassah Magazine, Breakdown in Aisle 5, What Is It About Women, Madness, and Supermarkets? by E. Kinney Zelsna. My book group recently chose two works whose titles evoke grocery store hysteria. Today, A Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket, a collection of short stories by Hilma Wolitzer, and Crying in H-Mart, a memoir by Michelle Zauner. In both, a key character finds herself in a supermarket aisle white-knuckling her shopping cart and sobbing sloppy, uncontrollable tears. This wasn't the first time this year I've come across such breakdowns. In season two of the television series This Is Us, which my family binged years after its release, postpartum Rebecca goes to pieces in a giant eagle when another shopper snags the last yellow onion. And in Mary Beth Keene's best-selling novel Ask Again, yes, potential killer Anne succumbs to full-blown psychosis in the deli line at Food King. What is it about women, madness, and supermarkets? Do shopping baskets turn us into basket cases? Or do writers default to supermarkets as the most public spaces women haunt, so that when they're actually haunted, it's a tidy backdrop for our woes? And I wondered, was there anything in my quintessential American Jewish upbringing that could offer any clues? I had my own 40-year love-hate relationship with grocery stores. When I was growing up in suburban Philadelphia, my mother, Judy, stopped at our local Superfresh nearly every afternoon, often with me in tow. She said she liked the freshest produce or that she had forgotten a key ingredient for dinner or an Entenmann's coffee cake for a holiday dessert. Watching her do this day after day triggered in me an adolescent resolve. I vowed that when it was my turn, I'd be one of those organized moms who never shopped more than once a week. I figured that if I could shave down hours spent at the supermarket, I could have kids in a big career, whereas my mother mostly just had kids after she left her full-time teaching position. My plan worked for a while. I became a busy corporate executive with four children. I married a guy who saw my grocery store ambition and raised it. Our family grew. He could amass a haul from Whole Foods that would last 10 days such heady efficiency. I was living out my teenage vow. Then one day a colleague who had taken a break from her own big career mentioned that every afternoon she stopped at the giant with her teenage daughter on the way home from school. 
She laughed out loud that her daughter hadn't yet figured out that she did this only to get her to talk about her day. Apparently, the girl clammed up in the car but became downright chatty amid the Cheetos and Cheerios. I was stunned. Had I opened up to my mother as we strolled through those aisles all those years even as I scorned the whole enterprise? More importantly, I wondered if my calculus had been wrong all along. Perhaps it was my mom and not I who had the proper regard for supermarkets. Gingerly, I returned to the giant. I tried to get my kids, who were all teenagers by them, to accompany me, but having probably absorbed my disdain, they usually passed. So on my way home from the office, I allowed myself to dawdle in the aisles and even developed a little swagger with my cart, steering purposefully, like I was hunting on the savannah, plucking new foodstuffs to delight the family. Then, in an even bigger snub to efficiency, I started driving 40 minutes each way to a kosher supermarket because my kids, who attended a Jewish day school, which I had not, started requesting kosher meat. The boxes of Lieber's strawberry gel and cans of Strite's mushroom and barley soup made me feel like I had teleported back to the kitchen of my grandmother Ruth. Had I likewise marginalized her by my lack of interest in food shopping and never learning the difference between a rib roast and a London broil? And that's when it dawned on me. The reason writers today have their characters melt down in supermarkets is because lots of women are working out their mother-related complexities amid the meat and potatoes. Michelle Zauner was mourning her mother and regretting her teenage rebellions when she broke down in H-Mart. Rebecca on This Is Us was grieving a stillborn triplet when she came undone about the onion. While my career versus family conflict wasn't nearly so wrenching, it was mother-centered just the same. My mother became a symbol of the choice of motherhood instead of a career, but I had wanted both. In my head, the supermarket was the locus of that painful choice, the place that made me feel small for either not being professional enough or not sufficiently nurturing. Writers who gave their characters these very public breakdowns know this supermarket superpower. It is liminal space in which nourishment is potential but not yet real, where the air is thick with memory, identity, and fearsome female choices about whether, what, and how to love. So if you see a woman weeping at Wegmans, give her some space. She might be missing a mother, a child, or an as-yet unattained part of herself. And next from Hadassah Magazine, Finding Refuge in Israel, Ukrainians and Russians Escape the War Uncertain of Their Future, by Larry Luxner. Anna Poloshenko, a university professor and broadcast journalist at STB, Ukraine's largest television network, had been hearing talk of an impending Russian military strike against her country for weeks. But she had dismissed the rumors as little more than diplomatic posturing. That suddenly changed February 24, 2022, uh, as Paula Sushenko was getting ready for work at her Kyiv TV station. She opened the Telegram app on her phone, and it lit up with frantic messages from her daughter, Angelina, who was in Israel on a study program. Mom, answer me. You are being bombed, texted the worried 17-year-old. The war had begun. At 4.50 a.m. the next morning, the deafening roar of an explosion startled Polisoshenko. A rocket had obliterated the building across the street. Grabbing her 76-year-old mother and some snacks, 
who woke up two blind elderly neighbors and guided them all down 12 flights of stairs in the darkness to the underground parking lot of a nearby supermarket where 1,000 people had already taken refuge. After shivering for a week in that vast subterranean shelter, Polisoshenko managed to board a train for an 11-hour trip to the relative safety of Lviv in western Ukraine. She had begged her mother to come with her, but she had refused. From Lviv, she took a bus over the border to Poland, and in mid-March, following the approval of her documents by the Israeli consulate in Warsaw, Polisoshenko flew to the Jewish state and received citizenship upon arrival at Ben-Gurion Airport. For the next five months, she spent five hours a day, five days a week, in an intensive Hebrew course at Haifa's Ulpan Etzion Carmel. Half of her 20 classmates were fellow Ukrainians. Today, her daughter is studying at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, while Polisoshenko gives lectures remotely to her students at Kyiv National University of Culture and Arts. She recently signed a contract with the municipality of Haifa to shoot informational and educational videos and is looking for a full-time job. So far, the work is very minimal, she said, but gradually everything will get better. Also, in late February, Ruvain Stamov, rabbi of five Masorti, or conservative congregations in Ukraine, in Kiev, Odessa, Kharkiv, Chernovitsky, and Dnipro, was preparing to host a Jewish educational seminar in his native Kharkiv. But after hearing reports of Russian troops massing at the Ukrainian border, only 20 miles to the north, he moved the event to Chernovitsy, a city in southwest Ukraine far from any potential Kremlin threat. My husband understood that war was very close, said the rabbi's wife, Michal, recounting from the couple's current home in Ashdod how she and her husband and their three daughters had packed for a three-day seminar at Chernovitsky's Magnat Cinema Hotel. They never imagined, she said, that cluster bombs and missiles would soon, de- uh, devastate, their be- would soon devastate their beloved city of Kharkiv. On March 7th, the Stamovs led some 100 Ukrainians who had assembled in Chernovitsky across the border to Romania for resettlement in Germany and Israel. Most of those who fled to Germany have established residence in Berlin. Since then, the rabbi, one of few in Ukraine affiliated with the conservative movement, has held monthly get-togethers for his congregants in Israel. He also holds Kabbalah Shabbat services every Friday via Zoom with the 40 or so families who remain in Ukraine. Very few of our people are left there, said the rabbi, who briefly returned to Ukraine to conduct Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur services in Kyiv. We all have post-trauma syndrome, Michal Stamov said. We really miss the communal life we had in Ukraine. And when we hear about the horrible things that have happened in places like Mariupol, we feel our world is broken. Polisoshenko and the Stamovs are among more than 40,000 citizens of Ukraine and Russia and, to a lesser extent, Belarus, who have fled to Israel since Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion of his country's southern neighbor, sparking bloodshed on a scale Europe hasn't seen since World War II. Many of the newcomers, whether they arrived as immigrants under the law of return or with tourist visas taking temporary refuge, are traumatized by their experiences. Some came to Israel because they already had relatives or friends there, 
Others were seeking to take advantage of an unknown but safe refuge. A number of the Ukrainians interviewed for this article were reluctant to talk about their current lives in Israel or, given the uncertainty of the war's trajectory, their plans for the future. Olga Kartashova has heard dozens of these tragic stories firsthand. The founder of Haifa's all-volunteer refugee assistance center, Kartashova started helping new arrivals fleeing the war soon after they began landing in Israel. Only a few weeks into the war, we saw that more and more people were showing up here in Haifa, but they weren't really receiving much support and didn't know where to go, especially those who arrived as so-called tourists, Kartashova said, as she showed this reporter around the center's two-story headquarters on Dara Ha'atzma'ot, one of the busiest boulevards in Haifa. The city has become home to one of the largest concentrations of Russian-speaking newcomers in Israel. Housed in a building that belongs to the Carmelite Order of the Catholic Church, the center looks more like a thrift store than a refugee assistance agency. Powdered milk, baby formula, jeans, t-shirts, winter coats, shoes, electrical appliances, kitchen utensils, toys, books, puzzles, and other donated items cram its floor-to-ceiling shelves. Boxes are labeled in Hebrew and Russian, while a huge blue and yellow Ukrainian flag hanging from a wall opposite Kardashova's desk leaves no doubt as to the leanings of those who staff this place, even though Kardashova herself is half Russian, half Ukrainian. Born and raised in Kaliningrad on Russia's Baltic coast, she is a doctoral candidate in Holocaust studies at New York University. She began her studies in the United States and continued them remotely from Israel once the COVID-19 pandemic began. These days, she and 40 or so fellow Russian and Ukrainian volunteers, as well as one Arab, spend their time sorting through donations of food, clothing, and medicines, deciding how best to disseminate them. Open three afternoons a week, the center also provides legal consulting, job placement assistance, family picnics, city tours, and workshops at no cost. I'm sure we're making a difference, Kardashova said. What we do is unique in that we offer not only food and clothing, but also information and moral support. Not many organizations are providing the kind of systematic help we do without any sort of institutional backing. Most of the more than 2,500 individuals who have used the center's services are women, children, and the elderly. Ukrainian men of military age are still unable to leave the country. The only exceptions are fathers with three or more children or cases where a family member is disabled and must be cared for, or if the man claims citizenship of another country. Besides Haifa, the newest arrivals are settling mainly in cities with existing Russian-speaking communities such as Netanya, Batyam, Ashkelon, Jerusalem, and Beersheba, while they tend to avoid Tel Aviv because of its extremely high cost of living. Most Ukrainians speak Russian. Perhaps ironically, while Russia's invasion of Ukraine led to a sharp increase in immigration to Israel from the country under attack, there has been an even greater surge in Aliyah from Russia. Global sanctions have devastated the Russian economy and made daily life hard for average citizens regardless of their views about Putin and the war. According to the Jewish Agency for Israel, 23,691 Russians settled in Israel during the first eight months of 2022, a 420% increase over the same period last year. 
In addition, 13,321 Ukrainians made Aliyah between January and August 2022, a 555% jump compared to the same period in 2021. During the same period, 1,320 immigrants arrived from Belarus, whose authoritarian president, Alexander Lukashenko, is assisting Russia with its war efforts. All told, immigrants from ex-Soviet republics comprised 84% of all new arrivals to the Jewish state during the first eight months of 2022. But as Ukraine's military takes back previously seized territory and conditions continue to deteriorate in Russia, Aliyah figures could change dramatically. Russians of all backgrounds began fleeing the country after Putin announced a mandatory conscription in late September. In response to that development, in early October, the Israeli government approved an emergency plan allocating the equivalent of $25 million for housing, job assistance, health care, and education to handle an expected surge of immigration from Russia, home to an estimated 165,000 Jews. The state of Israel is a safe haven for every Jew in the world, and their migration to Israel, no matter the cause, lifts the spirit, Immigration and Integration Minister Penina Tamano Shtah said in a statement. Her ministry, she said, will ensure that all Russian immigrants arriving in Israel these days under challenging circumstances will receive the holistic care they need to fully integrate into the Israeli society as quickly as possible. Under the plan developed by Tamano Shata and Finance Minister Avigdor Lieberman, until an individual's eligibility under the law of return is clarified, he or she will receive the same rights all immigrants are given, including an absorption package and living allowance. The 1953 law allows anyone with at least one Jewish grandparent to immigrate to Israel, along with his or her non-Jewish spouse. Israeli policy toward Ukrainians fleeing the bloodshed in their country has evolved since the war began. In early March, Interior Minister Ayala Chaked capped the number of temporary visas for new Ukrainian refugees who didn't qualify under the law of return at 5,000. The move sparked bitter criticism from the Ukrainian government and was eventually overturned by Israel's Supreme Court. Before the war, as many as 200,000 Jews and people of Jewish heritage lived in Ukraine, according to Michael Brodsky, Israel's ambassador in Kyiv. Today, Ukrainians constitute the largest group of Olim in Israel, combining those who have fled since February, along with the many Ukrainian Jews who came before them, mostly during the massive Soviet emigration of the early 1990s. There's definitely a strong interest from Jews in Ukraine to make Aliyah, the Russian-born diplomat said by phone from Kyiv, once the war is over, the number will jump, as the men will be able to leave Ukraine. Yet, just because a new immigrant is eligible for Aliyah under the law of return doesn't mean the Israeli authorities will recognize him or her as Jewish. In fact, the vast majority, exactly how many isn't known, of recent arrivals from Ukraine and Russia are not considered Jews in Israel because they weren't born to Jewish mothers. Maria Makarova lives in Natanya with her two children, 12-year-old Vladislav and 10-year-old Barbara. Originally from Luhansk in eastern Ukraine, Makarova, an economist who had worked as a sales analyst for a private company, and her husband Oleg, a materials engineer, fled to Kharkiv in 2014 after Russian troops, troops invaded the Donbass region. We were happy in Kharkiv. We had nice jobs, said Makarova. 
proudly wearing a yellow summer dress made by Nenka, a Ukrainian dress company. But when the war started, we were very afraid for our children. Every day, bombs were falling. We arrived in Lviv, and we decided I would come here with our children. When they arrived in Israel as Olim on March 21st, Makarova and her kids spent their, two, their first two weeks at Jerusalem's Prima Park Hotel. Their stay was paid for by the Jewish agency. Her kids are so traumatized by their experiences, she said that she can't leave them alone at night, even briefly, due to recurring nightmares. I'm studying Hebrew now because it's necessary and I'm looking for a job, she said. As a new immigrant, Makarova received a monthly government subsidy of about $1,480 for six months, plus a monthly rent credit of about $860, which will continue for a year. While she's at Ulpan, her children attend the local school, participate in athletics programs, and, like kids everywhere, play games on their phones. She speaks to her husband, now in the western Ukrainian city of Rivna, every day using Telegram or Viber. For the moment, she said she is safe and has not been drafted into the military. Yet even at her Ulpan in Netanya, echoes of the war are never far away. More than once, Makarova has overheard her pro-Putin Russian Jewish classmates ridicule Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, who is Jewish, demanding to know why Zelensky hadn't been killed yet. It's unclear how widespread such attitudes are or the degree to which friction exists between pro-Putin Russians and Ukrainians, according to one recent poll cited by Israel's I-24 news channel, conducted in late August among 4,712 Israelis, just as the war was nearing the six-month mark. 37% of newly arrived Russian immigrants see Russia as an enemy of Israel, compared with 61% of new Ukrainian arrivals. Likewise, 58% of Russian immigrants have a negative opinion of Russia itself, compared to 76% of Ukrainians. Of the overall Israeli population, 49% of those surveyed called Russia an enemy of Israel, while 42% consider Russia neither a friend nor an enemy, and only 6% view Russia as a friend of Israel. Kartashova, whose hyphen nonprofit helps all newcomers from the former Soviet Union, said hostilities between Ukrainian and Russian Jews in Israel are relatively rare. I haven't heard about any such encounters. There was a pro-Russian rally a few months ago, but the police made sure that no one got in fights with pro-Ukrainians, she said. But she added there are lots of nasty comments on Facebook against Ukraine and specifically Zelensky by Russian-speaking Israelis, many of whom view Putin as the best protector of Jews that Russia ever had. While many of the new arrivals say they have no idea if they intend to stay in Israel, Valeria Kolodova has no doubt she will. Born and raised in Donetsk, also in the eastern Donbass region, she served as director of the local Hillel until she was forced to relocate to Kiev after the Russians militarily occupied her city in 2014. Eight years later, when bombs and rockets once again threatened to upend her life, Kolodova, who is also a ballet teacher and student of Jewish culture, decided once again to move, this time, to Israel. Now a resident of Bat Yam, a coastal city south of Tel Aviv, where signs in Russian have long been almost as common as those in Hebrew, Kolodova still works for Hillel, but now remotely, as a program director for Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, Belarus, and Azerbaijan.
In these countries, Hillel's programming for young people is community-based rather than located at a particular university. Two months before the war, I decided to convert to Judaism. I had thought about it for a long time, more than three years, because all my life I had worked and lived in the Jewish world, said Kolodova, who is now pursuing her dream in Israel. A lot of my friends are Jewish, so for me it's a natural process. There are reports of some Ukrainians, as many as half, who have found refuge in Israel returning to Ukraine. Evgeny Scheider is among those who have made that return trip before, but now he's back in Israel. Scheider, an IT project manager for an uh, outsourcing company, and his wife, Zhenya, spent three years in Ashdod and Petatikva from 2015 to 2018. But Israel's high cost of living, combined with the difficulties they had learning Hebrew and finding jobs that paid well, led them to return to Ukraine. Along with their two children, six-year-old Shmuel and two-year-old Ida, the Scheiders lived in an apartment in Kyiv, very close to the United States Embassy, as well as a Ukrainian army base that later turned out to be a target for advancing Russian forces. Scheider painted a scene of desperation one recent afternoon at the family's apartment in Natanya's Kiryat Nordau district as his wife served coffee, dates, and warm strawberry cake. The first day of the war, I woke up, turned on the TV, and saw that Russian forces were only 700 meters from our apartment building. Scheider recalled as he pet the family dog, a white Scottish terrier named Milka. The teacher texted us, saying not to bring the kids to kindergarten. I saw the traffic jams going out of Kiev and understood that I couldn't take my family. I had no car. Trains were out of the question, too, especially with children, so Scheider sent his family to a nearby bomb shelter while he figured out what to do. As it turned out, his IT company had hired buses for employees and their immediate family members to travel to Lviv. He immediately reserved places on the first bus, which left four hours later. At the Ukraine's border with Poland, Scheider faced a tense moment. As a Ukrainian citizen between the ages of 18 and 60, he wouldn't be allowed to leave the country. So Scheider showed his Israeli passport and was immediately waved through. Within a few days, the family arrived at Ben-Gurion Airport and began their new lives in the Jewish state. I felt guilty about that, but as one of my friends told me, your job is your family. That's the most important thing, he said. And from another point of view, I continue working and donating to the Ukrainian army. I'm a project engineer with an American company, and since May I've hired more than 20 people in Ukraine, so this is a sort of compensation. This time around, he said, they were planning to stay. We were happier in Kyiv, and the level of education in Ukraine was higher, Scheider said of his home city, but our children are safe here. They're learning Hebrew, so it's okay. For many of these new immigrants, getting out of Ukraine is only part of the ordeal. A bigger one is getting a decent-paying job in Israel, one of the world's most expensive places to live. That's where Gvahim comes in. A nonprofit organization based in Ranana, just north of Tel Aviv, Gvahim has been helping new immigrants find jobs for 16 years, particularly in the high-tech sector, for which Olim from the former Soviet Union are especially well-suited, given their traditionally high technological literacy and familiarity with computer programming and software development. The charity boasts more than 6,000 alumni, a network of 1,000-plus Israeli companies, 500-plus mentors, and a 
90% job placement success rate. Juan Teifeld, Gavahim's Mexican-born CEO, said that soon after the war began, the nonprofit immediately went into overdrive, hiring two Russian-speaking recruiters to identify qualified applicants, all of whom are fluent in Russian, and field phone calls from employers willing to hire these latest arrivals. The immediate goal, secure jobs for 300 Olim, help to integrate them into Israeli society. For the first time, we launched a pilot program for Russian-speaking Olim, he said. The tools we're giving them are essentially the soft skills, how to find a proper job, how to write a CV, how to do a LinkedIn profile. In Israel, it's very important to know how to do a pitch. We also offer personalized human resource consultations in Russian. Teifeld waived the $180 fee that participants typically pay for Gibahim's programs. Those people need our help, he said, adding that Gibahim has also begun an online opan for Russian-speaking immigrants to learn business English. Lots of organizations will be here for the short term, but I want to be here long after nobody's talking about the war anymore. That day cannot come soon enough. For Makarova, the economist now living in Netanya, who's recently who recently signed up with Gibahim and is looking for a job. First, I want the war to end, and I, I'll think about this later, she said, when asked if she'd like to remain in Israel permanently. It's a difficult question. I'm afraid for my kids. If we didn't have children, I would have stayed in Ukraine with my husband and not come to Israel. I'm Ukrainian and I can live anywhere, but I love my kids very much and their future is my future. And next to sidebar to this story, at this youth village, we are all one family. Also by Larry Luxner. The pastoral setting of the Meyer Shafaya Youth Aliyah Village with its bucolic orchards, dairy, chicken farm, and organic winery is a far cry from the bombed-out apartment buildings and missile-ravaged streets of Kyiv, Kharkiv, Mariupol, and other Ukrainian cities devastated by the war with Russia. It's hard to imagine a more ideal setting for the 29 Ukrainian Jewish teens now living at this Hadassah-supported boarding school just north of Zichron Yaakov in northern Israel. One of the students is 15-year-old David Kofman, an aspiring music producer. He composes tunes in his spare time using a computer and headphones. All my life it's been my dream to live in Israel, said Kofman, who comes from the Danube River port city of Ismail. It's very cool here. I like this place very much. Andre Palienko, 16, is also a musician. He arrived from Krivoy Rog in eastern Ukraine with his mother, who is already considering returning even though he wants to stay. I don't want to leave, he said. I have really good friends here who help me. Both teens belong to the village's mandolin orchestra. Like other Ukrainians in their group, they had applied for the Na'alep program prior to the war, which began in February, and were scheduled to arrive in September 2022. The program, subsidized by the Jewish Agency for Israel and Israel's Ministry of Education, enables Jewish teenagers from the diaspora to complete their high school education in Israel for free. But because of the emergency, the Ukrainian students were accepted immediately without vetting and arrived during March and April, said Lauren Stern-Kedem, a longtime English teacher and later coordinator of Meyer Shafaya's English department. Meyer Shafaya, 
established by Hadassah nearly 100 years ago and later used as a safe haven for children escaping Nazi Germany, was the first youth village in Israel to house young new arrivals from Ukraine, according to Yoram Panias, the village director. Meanwhile, nearly 60 Ukrainian athletes were resettled at Hadassah Nurim, a nearby youth Aliyah village on Israel's Mediterranean coast. What is so special about Shfeya is the huge diversity of the kids we serve, Kedem said. I'm always inspired by these kids because of their willingness to trust us to take care of them. At Meyer Shfeya, the new Ukrainian teens mingle with Israeli students, Amharic-speaking Ethiopians, Arabic-speaking Bedouins, and Spanish speakers from Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. In all, the, stu- the school serves 640 students from 7th to 12th grade, 325 of whom live at the village. About half the residential student body is from the former Soviet Union. Boris Feldman, the school's Russian-speaking music director since 1991, said some of his Ukrainian students don't have an extensive music background because they couldn't afford instruments or lessons, but others have studied music for seven or eight years. In some cases, their parents had to sell their instruments in order to pay for the kids to come here, said Feldman, referring to some travel and other expenses the students may be responsible for. When they arrived, we bought cellos and violins so they could continue because music is such an important part of their lives. 15-year-old Sonia Podabri was born in Ujarod, a small town near Lviv in western Ukraine. Her brother, Igor, has lived in Israel for eight years and studies robotics at the Technion Israel Institute of Technology in Haifa. Podabri says her mother wants to return to Ukraine, but she's determined to stay. I won't even think about going back because the war is still going on. Given the trauma of leaving everything they know, these kids need a lot of warmth and love, not just financial and physical support, but also emotional support, said Tatiana Karlov who has been teaching mathematics at Meyer Shfeya since late May. Karloff can relate. Originally from the Ukrainian city of Kherson, which is now under Russian occupation, she left for Israel in 2008, but after seven years in the country, she moved to Kyiv. When the war broke out, she and her husband, Alexander, whose Israeli citizenship enabled him to leave, loaded their two children and four dogs into the family car and drove to Poland, eventually making their way to Israel. Dikla Morgan, Meyer Shfeya's academic advisor, also noted that the adjustment process hasn't been easy for the teens. They have to undergo a process of acclimation to become students and just be able to sit in class and regain their childhood and happiness, she said. There's also a linguistic issue. Everybody in Israel speaks Hebrew. That's a huge shift for them. Plus, they're without their families and they come from a war zone and don't know if they're ever going home again. Given occasional tensions between Russian and Ukrainian Jews in Israel amid the war, Morgan said her staff has spoken to the Russian youth at Meyer Shfeya, urging them to put politics aside and have compassion for their Ukrainian classmates. Though the school does not attempt to erase any of their students' previous identities or cultures, one of our main goals here is to create an Israeli identity that all students can adapt and relate to, Morgan said. Here... We are all one family. And Larry Luxner, the author of this article in Sidebar, is a Tel Aviv-based freelance journalist. He's news editor of the Washington Diplomat, 
He also writes for JTA, Times of Israel, and Rare Disease Advisor. And next from Hadassah Magazine, Jewish Matchmaking, there's an app for that. Searching for My King David Online by Ariel Kaplan. The Talmud says that matchmaking is as difficult for God as the parting of the Red Sea. I beg to differ. Finding my beshared is undoubtedly harder. The reverberating tick from my biological clock is a relentless reminder that at the ripe old age of 28, I have yet to be fruitful and multiply. This greatly concerns my mother, who at my age was pregnant with her second child. She desperately wants grandchildren, but not at the cost of a schmuck for a son-in-law. Don't go out with people who have substance abuse problems. Don't go out with people who show you that they are selfish and only talk about themselves. My mother, Nava, has warned me. Don't go out with narcissists. Those are the worst people. Oy, there goes the majority of the New York City dating pool, I thought. As I tuned out my mother's unhelpful advice, I couldn't help but wonder. Why did I elect to go on my birthright Israel trip with my then-boyfriend when I could have met so many eligible Zionist Jews as a single traveler? What's the point of having three older brothers if they won't set me up with their friends? Why aren't Jewish leaders doing more to find me a boyfriend? I mean, ensure Jewish continuity. Turns out I had been too busy crying over undateable duds on the Hinge app to notice the Shidduch Renaissance that started during the COVID-19 pandemic. From generation to generation, Jews have relied on the tradition of matchmaking to adapt to the ever-changing landscape of dating. Now, two of the newest and buzziest post-social distancing dating apps are going beyond the algorithms of established platforms like JDate and JSwipe to incorporate a matchmaker component as well as in-person gatherings. These innovations are coming as matchmakers also are making their mark in popular culture. From a shotgun plotline on Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel to the upcoming Jewish matchmaking reality show, on Netflix. With raunchy stunts like launching a pickle vibrator, cleverly dubbed the Dill Do, Locks Club is undoubtedly the hottest Jewish dating app for 20 and 30 something Jews. Self described as the digital place for Jews with ridiculously high standards, Locks Club is an exclusive members only group where singles must apply to join. But one need not be Jewish to join. Indeed, as stated in their online Frequently Asked Questions, Locks Club is like a deli. It's culturally Jewish, but you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy it. In Locks Club's early days in December 2020, CEO Austin Kevich gifted me a free membership to the app, which costs $36 for three months. At the time, I was working as an influencer on Instagram. Its success rides on a sleek user experience, matchmaker whom singles can text within the app and a heavy dose of nostalgia. Upon entering the app, users are welcomed into a digital speakeasy with a fictional tale based on Kevich's late grandparents. Above all, Vox Club is known for hosting rowdy in-person events in New York City, Miami, Austin, and Los Angeles. From comedy shows and fitness classes to live podcast events and happy hour mixers, the app for elite Jews has gatherings for everyone. That is, unless you're intimidated by glitzy socialites who look like they'd bully you in high school. Those vain and vapid mean girls who rejected me from the cool Jewish sorority at Indiana University. 
relegating me to Sigma, Delta Tau, snidely nicknamed Slutty Dumpy Trolls. But I figured I'd join Box Club to meet eligible guys, not necessarily befriend women. As for the men, many of the ones I met took great pride in likening themselves to Curb Your Enthusiasm's Larry David, only with better fashion sense. I'll never understand the draw of a materialistic, nebbish mama's boy. Where's the sex appeal? Give me a hunk of a match like Mel Brooks or Harpo Marx. Heck, I'd even take Zero Mustel. Over the course of several months, and following a handful of unremarkable first dates, I did have a brief fling with a locks club suitor. He was handsome and witty and paid for our Friday night dates at Shalom Japan in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. Despite his weed dependency, my mom would have approved of his generosity. He spoiled me with trinkets and chocolates, but the relationship was short-lived. I broke it off when I learned he was actively anti-Zionist. I, a cultural Jew and Zionist, who was increasingly feeling like a herring out of water, exclusively date Zionists. If searching for Mr. Wright on an app that prioritizes aesthetics over Jewish values isn't your thing, allow me to introduce you to Meet Jew, a nonprofit matchmaking service without Lox Club's ridiculously high standards. In lieu of an app, the platform operates on Facebook through a handful of groups catering to singles of different cohorts. Meet Jew University Dating, ages 18 to 26, Meet Jew Post-Grad Dating, 23 to 34, and Meet Jew Professional Dating, 30 and older. Boasting around 60,000 global members, singles are encouraged to post flattering photos with colorful About Me blurbs, inviting interested parties to slide into their DMs, slang for reaching out. Touting seven marriages and 36 engagements since launching in 2020, Meet You co-founders Aaron Ramey and Daniel Ebrahimi are masterful Shadchanim matchmakers. As their Facebook groups exploded, the Los Angeles-based duo drafted an in-depth Meet Jew IQ questionnaire with prompts like, Do you consider yourself a Zionist? Do you want to make Aliyah? Are you looking for a serious relationship? Yes, no, if the vibe is right, not sure. They also enlisted the help of coder Justin Cohen, who met his fiancée through Meet Jew, to devise an algorithm that matches participants based on their answers. Now, each week on Match Monday, Ramey and Ibrahimi personally email members from the various groups with two to three matches. Singles are encouraged to reach out to their possible Besherts intended. According to Ibrahimi, the criteria that single Jews seem most adamant about is location, location, location. Long distance is a deal breaker because Jews don't like difficulties or hardships, Ibrahimi asserts, only partly in jest. Above all, he adds, people just want to meet someone who is Jewish, and, crucial to me, someone who is a Zionist. Meet Jew proudly organizes Yom Ha'atzma'ot and Tel Aviv-themed mixers. The founders are committed to fostering Zionism, Ibrahimi stresses, and doing everything to support Jews and Israel. The Facebook groups and questionnaire are the social dating platform's bread and butter, but like Lox Club, Meet Jew hosts house parties as well as events at Instagrammable clubs in Los Angeles, New York City, and Boston. As an extrovert weighted down by social anxiety, I find it difficult to approach potential suitors at these types of soirees. 
Meet Jew addresses my timidity by collaborating on a number of their gatherings with Filter Off, a video speed dating app created by Zach Schlein in 2020. By arranging speed dating sessions ahead of some Meet Jew events, Filter Off allows nervous Nellies like me to ensure that there will be someone of romantic interest at the party. Filter Off with Schlein's response to the mental health risks posed by Tinder, the popular swipe right hookup app that celebrated its 10th anniversary in September. I went to a Meet Jew Tuba Ab themed party in August at the Dean and Elegant Bar in Manhattan with walls covered in greenery. I arrived just a minute before the open bar closed and managed to snag a white claw. I quickly chugged the hard seltzer and joined my new friends on the dance floor, swinging my hips to whatever the DJ was playing three decibels too loud. Surrounded by Jewesses in white dresses in a nod to the Hebrew calendar's holiday of love, I felt as though we were the daughters of Jerusalem dancing in the vineyards waiting, the vineyards waiting to be plucked by an eligible bachelor. I didn't meet my King David that night, but for the first time since my biological clock began ticking, I felt a wave of reassurance knowing that the matchmaking renaissance was in full swing. Tradition. Ariel Kaplan is the digital editor of Hadassah magazine. And a sidebar to the piece, Digital Dating 101, where to search for your bashert online if you are 20 or 30-something. Meet Jew operates via Facebook groups, meetjewonline.com. Locks Club seeks to be the coolest destination for singles, locksclubapp.com. Hinge, Bumble, and OkCupid offer Jewish filters, hinge.co, bumble.com, and okcupid.com. Saw you at Sinai has paired over 2,000 couples, many of them orthodox, saw you at Sinai.com. JSwipe is the number one most downloaded Jewish app, and that's J-S-W-I-P-E-A-P-P.com. JDate claims to be responsible for 52% of Jewish marriages that began online, jdate.com. Filter Off is the world's first video speed dating app, getfilteroff.com. Corona Crush took off for Jewish singles during the pandemic, coronacrush.com. Yenta Over the Rainbow matches Jewish queer singles, and that's Y-E-N-T-E Over the Rainbow.com. And next from Hadassah Magazine's food section, still smitten with Deb Perlman, Keepers and Classics from a Tiny New York Kitchen by Adina Sussman. Back in 2006, when Deb Perlman tentatively began blogging about food, she feared her efforts would end up lost in a digital desert. A passionate home cook who worked as an art therapist, Perlman had a penchant for prose but a pronounced lack of food industry experience and contacts. Cold emailing various publications looking for work as a food writer yielded no bites. Obviously, no one would hire me, Perlman told me, from Manhattan, where she was preparing for her son Jacob's bar mitzvah that upcoming weekend. And so she began developing photographing and posting recipes for her nascent blog, Smitten Kitchen, out of her tiny East Village kitchen, where she lived with her then newly married husband, Alex. She did everything herself, shopping, planning, styling, and cleanup, tentatively beginning to post and lingering in the emotional basement of low expectations. I was convinced it would be a failure, said Perlman, 46. 
I figured I'd just blather about food online to a non-existent audience and either find something worth doing forever or get it out of my system. I had no real experience. All I had were opinions. It became very clear very quickly that people wanted to hear those opinions. Smitten Kitchen, featuring early signature recipes like short ribs boring non that Perlman paired with lactis for Hanukkah, soon garnered a coterie of fans who connected to her self-deprecating sense of humor as much as her food. Here was a woman comfortable enough in her kitchen and digital space to confess her kitchen flops as readily as her successes. Sixteen years later, Smitten Kitchen is more popular than ever, attracting millions of unique visitors per month, not to mention 1.6 million Instagram followers. The blog has spawned three cookbooks written and photographed by Perlman, the latest being Smitten Kitchen Keepers, New Classics for Your Forever Files, which was slated to be released in November. The proliferation of TikTok recipe creators focused on up-to-the-second trends like corn ribs and wobbly Japanese pancakes made Perlman even more determined to write a book that would stand the test of time, similar to those by her idol Ina Garten of Barefoot Contessa fame. My hope is that the recipes in Smitten Kitchen Keepers are the kinds you could make forever, said Perlman. I know books always eventually look dated, but a perfect pound cake recipe is, I hope, the last one you'd ever need. Perlman is referring to her better-than-classic pound cake described with her trademark wit in the recipe's introduction as a two-and-two-thirds pound pound cake. I don't make pound cakes that force you to look down into the pan to see them. I think pound cakes should dome tall and chaotic over the rim. TikTok trends notwithstanding, Perlman, who is active on that platform, does appreciate the democratizing efforts of social media food content. I think there are many more ways for people without food media experience to get in the door, which I think is a win for everyone, she said, citing food influencers like Edith Galvez and Carolina Gellin. I love seeing more faces and hearing more voices than food media has traditionally celebrated. For Gellin, the appreciation is reciprocal. Deb's work and success are very inspiring to me as a creator, said Gellin, a Romanian-born Jewish immigrant to the United States. Her inviting, friendly, and approachable way of cooking is what makes her recipes so great and gets people comfortable in the kitchen. Her will to never compromise her website's voice inspired me to stay true to myself when it comes to the recipes and stories I share online. Smitten Kit and Keepers is heavy on what has always defined Perlman's website, comfort food, classics like spaghetti and meatballs and s'more bars alongside a pantry of global flavors. Dishes like falafel, tomato chickpea masala, and oven-braised beef with harissa raise the question of cultural appropriation and recipe development. Perlman has written previously about wading into the dialogue around which country or ethnic identity can truly claim a dish as, it, as its own. Case in point, when she adapted a Saver recipe for shashuka on her website and referred to it as an Israeli dish, she heard from a chorus of followers that shashuka is in fact Tunisian in origin. She has corrected the mistake. I think we should cook anything that we enjoy and want to eat, said Perlman, but if you're going to write about it, at minimum you should know where the dish came from and how whatever you're making might deviate from the way it's more typically made. I am hardly perfect at any of this, but I am always happy to make a correction. Indeed, Perlman takes seriously feedback from her followers. She adjusts recipes and makes tweaks based on their comments, reading or responding. She says, 
to more than 350,000 queries since she started her blog. The obsession over how every recipe will fare in the kitchens of her reader cooks is what drives her the most. I'm realistic about our time, energy, and grocery limitations at home, said Perlman, who uses her own family, Alex, Jacob, and six-year-old daughter Anna, as her ultimate tasting panel. Alex also helps in the kitchen. While we were corresponding for this article, she was, uh, he was testing chicken with rice, chorizo, and tomatoes from, from her new book, and regularly makes her famous creme brulee French toast on the weekends. Once he loves a dish enough that he requests it, I hand off the recipe to him, especially when he has more time, Perlman said of her husband. For smitten kitchen keepers, she labored over how to improve upon a classic roast chicken, eventually landing on a bed of schmaltzy croutons and a lower cooking temperature than most versions require. The schmaltzy chicken, shared here, and other keepers allude to Perlman's Jewish roots. While she isn't particularly observant, many of her recipes are not kosher, she says that she does think about what makes certain foods Jewish. Most Jewish foods are of a place and time where they were made by everyone, she said, but in their own homes Jews did what they needed to make them kosher, swapping chicken or beef for pork, removing dairy from a cake or bread to make it parv, making doughy soup dumplings with matzah meal. Perlman grew up in Franklin Township, New Jersey, part of a family that identified as conservative but preferred the nearby Reform Synagogue where Perlman celebrated her bat mitzvah. We just unearthed the photos as we got ready for my son's bar mitzvah, she told me, before launching into typical and comical self-mockery. What a terribly awkward time for a girl to be so heavily photographed. A quick search through the Best of Recipe Collection on smittenkitchen.com returned several quintessential Ashkenazi recipes, best challah, mom's apple cake, tangy spiced brisket, my ultimate chicken noodle soup, and marbled cheesecake hamantaschen, among many others. Still other treats from smitten kitchen keepers evoke the Jewish tradition in homey and delicious ways like her savory Bialy babka, and with Hanukkah in mind, a chocolate olive oil spread that Perlman states in her recipe introduction makes a wonderful gift. And she adds, it's wonderful for gifting yourself. And to look at these recipes, just go to hadassamagazine.org forward slash food or smittenkitchen.com. Adina Sussman, who wrote this article, she's the author of Sababa, Fresh Sunny Flavors from My Israeli Kitchen and co-author of Gazo's The Art of Making Magical Seasonal Sparkling Drinks. She lives in Tel Aviv. And next, the suggestion of a Hanukkah book for children, Sally Opened Doors, The Story of the First Woman Rabbi by Sandy Eisenberg Sasso, illustrated by Margot Lucas from Apples and Honey Press. In their previous picture books, the writer-illustrator team of Sandy Eisenberg Sasso and Margot Lucas have depicted the true stories of Judith Kaplan Eisenstein, daughter of Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, who in 1922 became the first American woman to celebrate a bat mitzvah, and Regina Jonas, who in 1935 in her native Berlin became the first woman to be ordained privately as a rabbi. This third collaboration, spotlighting Jewish women's achievement, moves forward in time to the 1970s to Sally Priestland who was ordained at the Reform Movement's Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in 1972. 
Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always for listening.